a new era is upon us and Tangent is back with a new limited series hosted by venture capitalist Jeffrey Berman and me, PropTech entrepreneur Edward Cohen. Tangent unites PropTech founders, real estate investors, urban leaders and passionate creators who are improving our cities and quality of life. Join us to learn how we can solve the present day challenges in our communities with innovative technology and greater collaboration. We'll examine diverse issues through interviews and conversations where going off on a tangent is encouraged, hoping to help you become a more nuanced thinker and find comfort in data. If you are working on a PropTech solution, a nonprofit, or a small business that makes our cities better and would like your mission featured on our features segment, please email us at tangentcommunity at gmail.com. Hi, welcome to Tangent. I'm Edward Cohen. Hi, everybody. I'm Edward's co-host, Jeffrey Berman. And today we have someone super special. Today on Tangent, we have Zach Ahrens, co-founder and general partner at Metaprop the New York-based prop tech venture capital firm responsible for investing in over 150 tech companies. Hi, Zach. Where does this podcast find you? Well, I'm in Paris, Texas right now, just enjoying the scenery. And thank you so much for having me on the, on the program today. The pleasure is, is all yours. I can actually vouch for that. The pleasure is all ours. Correct. Since you joined today, uh, this morning, it, you know, everything's flowing. We, we flow over here at the Tangent. Let's bust right into it. State of the PropTech market. Um, how are startup valuations adjusting in a high interest rate uh, slash pre-recession environment? I'm going to add to that before you answer that, Zach. Also, the amount of uncertainty that's in the market. It's our job to deploy capital. I'm curious, we're curious how you're approaching capital deployment in this, in this market. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely a challenging market right now. And there's no doubt about that. I think everything eventually cascades from what happens in the public equity markets. And what we've seen in the public equity markets over the past six, seven months is a dramatic sell-off of the majority of the names that we track in PropTech. Uh, before November 2021, the public PropTech index was actually outperforming the QQQ, it was outperforming the S&P 500, it was outperforming, it was, it was on par actually with the Bessemer Cloud Index. It was one of the best performing indices in the stock market. What's happened since is quite the opposite. Every recent IPO or DSPAC transaction has traded down precipitously, uh, some order of magnitude 70 to 80% uh, from their peaks. The prop tech companies that went public in more traditional processes uh, like Procore have also traded down, but not quite as much. So we're seeing, we've seen a huge sell-off, but to Jeff's point, we've seen a modest rebound in a handful of names, although quite a few of them uh, still have yet to rebound and, and may not rebound at all uh, until they can get their burn profile under control. I think you're seeing public equity investors much more concerned right now with EBITDA margins, with free cash flow, with contribution margins, and they want to see profitability pre-IPO. Whereas I think a year ago, uh, the markets would have tolerated or even encouraged uh, growth at all costs with profitability maybe three, four, five years out. So what always happens in the private markets is depending on what stage you play at, the cascades coming from the public equity markets tend to have a three to six month lag. So we play across the stack. We're, we're primarily known as an early stage shop, but we do occasionally uh, invest in later stage deals. We saw the series B and C stage market start to correct much sooner than we saw the pre-seed and seed market start to correct. So series B valuations, I would say, are now down at least 50% from where they were. Diligence periods are increased. So last year we were seeing deals, even late stage deals, getting done in a matter of a couple weeks, um, if not a few days. Uh, now we're seeing venture firms take their time, really scrutinize the company, uh, their margin profiles, really dig into the management teams, and really taking their time to underwrite the deal. Uh, we've finally seen a correction in the seed stage market. Uh, keep in mind, the, the, the correction hasn't been as steep. There's, there's just not the same kind of pressure 
on the early stage market. And there's still a ton of capital that needs to go into these deals. So we've seen about, call it a 30% valuation correction at seed. We've seen probably a 50% or higher correction at series B. And then series A is interestingly, and I'd I'd love to get Jeff's opinion on this since he runs a, a primarily series A and series B shop. We're just not seeing series A's getting done. Um, The founders who have traction to do a Series A are going out to market, testing the market. They're not liking the terms they're getting from investors. They're pulling back from the market. They're going to their insiders and they're asking to do an extension round so they can effectively um, wait until next year when they hope the market will be a little bit better and they can re-enter. So we've seen a dramatic drop off in the number of Series A financings that are getting done. Uh, we're still seeing quite a bit of action at the Series B stage for entrepreneurs who are willing to do deals at reasonable valuations. We're also seeing quite a lot of action at the pre-seed and the seed stage. One of the interesting things, and we, we track this actually to the person, is unfortunately we're seeing a massive amount of talent movement in the prop tech markets right now. You've seen layoffs at tons of very large companies, whether it's Better Mortgage, whether it's Redfin, whether it's... Um, blend labs. And these people are super talented. And a lot of them are starting companies. So we're seeing company formation um, at a good place right now. And we're seeing a lot of investors willing to back those founders because they have significant experience in prop tech at the pre-seed stage. But we estimate there's going to be about 4,000 people in our industry that are going to change jobs this year in 2022. That's astounding. Uh, when Jeff and I started doing this, there weren't even 4,000 people in the industry at large, let alone having an industry large enough where 4,000 people could change job in, in a single year. Um, so I have a lot more to uh, say on this topic, but but I'll see the floor for now. Yeah, I, I mean, look, there's there's a lot to unpack in what you just said, and I want to I want to focus on one thing, Edward. You and I spoke about this briefly in the previous podcast, but that's companies that went public via SPAC. I feel like. And the data actually points to they're in a special place of purgatory versus, like you said, like Procore, who went through the traditional IPO. While they're still down, the eye of Sauron, so to speak, is not exactly on them putting a negative spin on what they're doing because they didn't take the quote-unquote shortcut. I think I completely agree with you. I think it's going to take some time for those companies that despacked to regain favor in the, in the public market. As far as the the private markets, so Zach qualified us correctly. We're primarily a Series A shop. And like Metaprop, we also will invest late stage, very infrequently will invest early stage. That's typically not, not where we play. And we're still seeing quality entrepreneurs, the, our, our, the deal volume has not decreased. In fact, it's increased for us, but it's a different profile. It's groups that, and, and I know, I don't know if we're going to be using camera for this, but I know Zach's going to smile when I say this. There are quite a number of folks that have approached us where six to eight months ago, they would have said, oh, we're just letting you know we're here, but there's no room for you. And we're getting 10 on a billion, just FYI. Now it's hat in hand. Oh yeah, you know, we're, we're doing this, we're doing this inside around. It's going to be so amazing. And we really think that you're the most strategic. Translation is we're running out of cash. We can't support our valuation. And uh, by the way, we're, we're sorry for, you know, for, for maybe getting a little over our skis. Fortunately for us, and I think this is true for, for, for Metaprop and the, and the more disciplined firms out there, as far as Canberra Creek is concerned, we haven't overpaid. And, we, and that's something that our investors are, are quite happy about. When you're looking at the early stage, and, and Zach, I'm, prim- I'm really curious what you're thinking. When there's not much data and you're essentially investing in the human beings that are sitting around the table, which is what we have done when we've, in the two times that we've ever invested really, really early, how are, you, how are you seeing valuations? What's that negotiation like with those entrepreneurs when they're saying, yeah, we want 10 on 100, even though we only have an idea, or we want five on 50. What, what, what's that conversation like? Those conversations are pretty short with me these days because I, I, I just, I can't tolerate it. So, you know, I think one of the big differences is that the entrepreneurs who are a little more seasoned, they understand that 
they are subject to the same macroeconomic conditions that the rest of us are. And so they're willing to play ball. And those that aren't are usually able to continue to wait it out. I think Jeff made an interesting point. We're pursuing a pretty similar strategy and we're being out, we're outbounding as well. So a lot of firms will be doing these inside rounds, but there will be an opening for call it another million dollars, another $2 million um, in that inside round. And we're coming in and we're saying, hey, we don't have very strict ownership requirements. Let us come in on this round and, and we can help you out. And especially if they don't have, if that company doesn't have prop tech funds on the cap table already, the co-investors are welcoming that and they're actually telling their entrepreneurs, yeah, we'll do an inside round, but we would love for you to have, we would love for this company to have some validation, to have some good housekeeping stamp of approval from one of the prop tech funds. And we're able to provide that. And, and we have a list as much as we've done to promote our brand and, and try and do right by entrepreneurs over the years. And there are still plenty of deals that are on our wish list, our, our great white whales. And we are not too proud to consistently email entrepreneurs every week and ask them if we can invest. And those emails, which were never returned, are now getting returned. <laughs> that reminds me of the classic TLC song, I Ain't Too Proud to Beg. To beg. So I, I, I wish we could play that while Zach was saying that. But, it's, but here's another interesting point that you, that you just surfaced, which is there's still so much money in the private markets to be deployed. And so there's this interesting tension with companies that are doing insider rounds because like you said, especially at the series A, where they're not getting, they're not generating the same excitement. And yet there are, there are funds on the cap table that say, well, we've got reserves, we can continue to support. And in some cases they're making tougher deals with their own portfolio companies in order to continue helping them build throughout this period. And, I, and actually, this is, I think, a good segue to the next topic, which is how much of the responsibility is it of the folks on the cap table to ensure a prudent spending and prudent fiscal strategy for the startups? Because we're seeing, again, fortunately, and our, our portfolio is smaller, we're, we're more concentrated. And so when we invest, we make it our business to ensure that the financial plan is strong and built for the long term. It's like be in business tomorrow. Don't worry about spending crazy. But there are certainly portfolio companies that we have seen or the inbound deals where they spend they they way over hired. And now there those are those hires are starting to come down. Like Zach, to your point about the amount of uh, jobs that are going to be either lost or or attrition because of different career opportunities. Zach, I'm curious on your opinion about how you feel like the, the, the VCs on the cap table, what that, what that responsibility feels and looks like, and, and has that changed with the market environment? Yeah, so great question. We, we take that responsibility very seriously, even if we're not on the board. And unlike Camber, we have 126 investments as a fund. Um, we're probably only sit on about 15 boards. But I believe there's actually a lot of the people who haven't been in this industry for a long time and we're the ones paying crazy valuations, and we're the ones not doing any diligence, and we're the ones being undisciplined, they have overcorrected, frankly, because they're scared that their portfolio is underwater. So they're now telling their companies, even if they're Series A, Series B stage, you need to do whatever it takes to get to EBITDA profitability. And I don't think I'm in business to get a company doing 10 million in revenue and $2 million in EBITDA. I think I'm in the business of trying to finance businesses that get to a billion dollars in revenue and $250 million in EBITDA. And so I'm not rushing and overcorrecting and telling all our companies that they need to drastically cut burn, especially if things are working. I think the major, we're certainly much more communicative with them, reminding them that, that the financing environment's different and they need to keep their expenses tight. But I am not in the business of funding companies that get profitable quickly. I'm in the business of funding companies that grow quickly 
and eventually become profitable, in my opinion. So I've heard a lot of things where it's like, oh, we need to make sure all of our companies have three years of runway on their balance sheet. I fundamentally disagree with that. I think I used to say in a good market, you want to have 18 months. And in this market, you want to have 24, 25 months. I don't want to fund a zombie company that exists for 70 months and is not working and is not generating anything. If it's failing, that's fine. Let's shut it down. It happens. So I think that's my approach. And I think I'm very, very conscious of the overcorrection that I've seen a lot of the other investors on the cap table. And so I think actually I'm being a little bit of a healthy pushback. And some of our entrepreneurs hopefully are appreciating that. That's interesting. Um, in terms of what uh, the valuations are being based on in these conversations, there's always a narrative behind the company, behind an idea, and there's also the numbers. Are, is it possible that we're now refocusing more on the actual numbers? Uh, the narrative is still super important, but are we like prioritizing more numbers these days uh, because of the environment or, or is the narrative still, still king and queen? From my perspective, nothing has changed as far as the ingredients that go into why we're making an investment. The narrative is important, but for us, you have to remember, we are hyper-specialized and we invest specifically when our LPs can help accelerate the growth of the companies toward a venture return. So we're differently placed in, let's say, a very early stage investor who is focused entirely on the narrative, but may now be doing more homework on what the actual total addressable market is versus saying, oh, I really love this entrepreneur and they'll figure it out. That's still being done as far as, as, far as I'm seeing. And Zach, you know, we looked at, um, at a few companies, I'm, I won't say them, but you, you know who and what I'm talking about, that even in this market, they're still generating or they're still able to pull from established VCs term sheets at sky high valuations with minimal dilution. So I think there is like, there's, there is a, a, a layer at the top that is somewhat inert to, to this correction. I think that's always going to be the case. The, either the best storytellers or the best marketers or the best entrepreneurs, however you want to classify it, they're able to generate that excitement. I mean, our friend, uh, and I'm using that term loosely because I don't know him, Adam Newman. Look, he just raised $350 million uh, for a new transformational, as they say, real estate multifamily company. Now that dilution, if it's if it's three fifty on a billion, that's thirty five percent. Of course, I have no idea what he actually, what Andreessen actually bought. Whether they actually bought physical real estate, in which case it might make sense, right? Like Zach, you you know, this, we're we're reformed real estate developers, but Adam clearly is talented in a way that maybe some entrepreneurs are not and are not able to generate that same excitement. Well, let me just do one point on that. I think I think there's much at the later stage, there's a much higher focus, not necessarily just on revenue and revenue growth, but on gross margin and contribution margin and on revenue quality. And so I'm seeing in the old VC world of last year, you would always see valuations quoted on revenue multiples at the Series B stage. Now we're seeing for the first time, honestly, in my career, people quoting multiples of gross margin or multiples of contribution margin. And then the thing I'll say about the seed stage difference, and, and Jeff hinted at it, but we, we back entrepreneurs all the time and they say, here's my product right now, and it's going to unlock this, and then this unlocks that, and that's when you get the giant total addressable market. I think you're seeing way more skepticism of that at the seed stage. And investors now need conviction that go-to-market strategy A with product A is the unlock. And we're not necessarily as willing to give the benefit of the doubt to the entrepreneur when they say, yeah, this first thing I'm doing is super unprofitable, but once I do it, it's going to unlock product X, right? Lending or whatever bolt-on they are fantasizing about. How should I choose the next market to invest in? Should I keep investing in the same metro areas? How should I diversify my real estate locations? Will this market live up to the hype? 
These are some of the fundamental questions multifamily investors often ask ourselves. The tech company Market Stadium is here to help solve all these pains. Market Stadium has developed an interactive platform tracking over 400 indicators to help investors understand how markets have performed, how markets are performing today, and how much markets will grow in the future. Market Stadium enables investors to analyze deals in bulk by market to determine where to deploy your capital going forward. Market Stadium also empowers investors to scale in-depth market research to identify which markets are best suited for your strategy and product. To learn more, book a demo with the team at marketstadium.com. That's marketstadium.com. Uh, let's uh, let's break this down. Let's break down Adam Newman's flow. Uh, 350 million uh, for we don't know what exactly. Uh, what we do know is that uh, Newman's company has acquired around 3,000 apartments across the Sunbelt, uh, plus made a few uh, investments in strategic uh, property components, uh, if you want to call them that way, um, you know, to, to create a, a residential real estate puzzle, like a mortgage company and a leasing company. But just to put this investment into, into context, the, the largest owner of multifamily, Graystar, paid around $200 million when they acquired Alliance Residential's 110,000 uh, apartments. Uh, so that's $200 million for 110,000 apartments. And now we have uh, Adam Newman's flow, $350 million, which includes uh, allegedly 3,000 or so apartments. Could this be a shift in PropTech VC from asset light uh, focus to more asset heavy companies? Well, hold on. I, wanna, I just want to jump in there uh, right away. There, there have been companies uh, for the last maybe 10 years that have certainly been asset heavy. Uh, fortunately, we've never invested any of them. I don't think that's a shift. I think generalist VCs that might not understand real estate as well as some of the prop tech focus firms whose general partners have real estate experience if they don't understand it and they're investing in asset heavy and expecting an asset heavy business to scale like a software company, they might be diluting themselves. So I wouldn't say that this is that this marks a, a shift one way or the other. What it does is says, wow, here's an entrepreneur who led a, I, I don't even know how to, Zach, how would you qualify WeWork? Because when people, when people say, they changed the real estate industry. That's just not true. There were executive suites long before WeWork existed. They weren't doing anything transformational as far as like the actual business of real estate. In fact, they were leasing from a millennium and then releasing for more money, but then spending money on parties and whatnot. So like I, it, was a, it was a flawed business model to, to begin with. So this I think is something different. It might not be like, again, we don't know what, the conversations look like between Andreessen and Adam. They, it may be that they say, look, we're just building a new real estate management company and it's going to have crypto tokenized reward, whatever buzzword you want to use. But at the end of the day, if it's, if it's a real estate company, great. You know, if it's not expected to go from a billion in valuation to 50 billion overnight because Adam is changing the world's harmonics to be fluid such that we're all on the same wave like yeah, I don't even know what I'm saying at this point because but uh, you know that that movie just like really sunk into me the series sorry so again I don't think it's a I don't think it's a shift I think this is I hope this is somewhat isolated but we also don't know anything about the company unless Zach knows something I don't I don't know if I know something you don't but we've funded a lot of former WeWork people who've gone on to start businesses and so we know a lot of people in that world. And so we had heard that he was going around the Sunbelt, buying up multifamily buildings, looking to finally create the We Live concept that his investors, you know, he would probably say his investors didn't let him do. So we knew this was coming. I didn't necessarily know that Andries and Horowitz was going to be the one backing it. And, you know, there have been plenty of attempts to create technology-enabled multifamily property management companies. Um, Common is a great example of one. And there are many 
now tech enabled, they, they use plenty of technology. We brought up Graystar, they deploy a lot of technology. They don't happen to be building it in house, but they have their own internal innovation and technology integration team. They leverage many companies that are in the Camber Creek portfolio and the Metaprop portfolio to do their business better, whether that's property management, whether that's facilities management, whether that's asset management, whether that's leasing, whether whatever piece of the puzzle. And I don't want to speak for them, but they would probably tell you that technology creates efficiencies. However, multifamily property management is fundamentally a pretty low margin business, and it requires a lot of scale to get really, really big. I think the biggest player in this space, other than probably that's publicly traded, and so you can check their numbers, is first service residential. First service residential, I think, is a around a $6 billion market cap company, right? And if you look at how many units they have under management, it absolutely dwarfs the 3,000 that Flow is going to have. So I don't really understand what building everything in-house at this point will get you when you have so many talented entrepreneurs who have been building technology for so many years. And yeah, it's not perfect. Are there things I would change about at Folio or Yardy? Of course. Are there things I would change about some of the leasing technology like Funnel and Knock Rentals? Sure. But they're way better than what the industry had 10, 20, 30 years ago. And they're certainly good enough where if they're deployed correctly within an organization that properly integrates them, can create a lot of efficiencies. So I honestly don't really have an idea of what is going on vis-a-vis this investment other than upsetting, frankly, upsetting a lot of people who, you know, there are a lot of entrepreneurs who have reached out to me who feel overlooked. They they feel like they've been building, you know, their technology, their their high gross margin, really good, really beautiful technology products for years. And they feel like they're yelling into a void and the venture capital world is just not listening to them. And so when they see something like this, when they see, you know, arguably the most famous venture capitalist in the world who happens to protest multifamily development in his own hometown, giving $340 million to a guy who is a known sociopath, I think that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. I mean, it certainly rubbed me the wrong way. You mentioned something interesting. I've, I've, every time Zach opens his mouth, something interesting is going to come out. And you said there are a number, probably a large number of entrepreneurs building a business, high gross margin, look to be on a, on a great path, and yet they're being ignored by the venture community. And this goes to the point or the question that Edward asked earlier about how much the narrative matters. Look, a lot of what, and, I'm, and, I, and I think all of us are guilty of this, but if I get a direct message on LinkedIn and it doesn't come from a warm introduction, like if Zach isn't introducing me to an entrepreneur, if I'm not introducing Zach to an entrepreneur, I have a very hard time focusing my attention on that, even though that person might have something amazing. Typically, I'll always answer, but Adam was out there. Andreessen was a backer multiple times. So that access, I think, is a, is a huge part of why this is happening. And it's, it's interesting. It's like... But I don't think they, they weren't on WeWork's cap table. No, no, I understand that. But I don't think A16Z was on, yeah. No, but at the same time, Adam had some fairly prominent backers and he was in the venture flow. And so he knew all of the big actors. And so you see Mark Andreessen talking to him. What do they have? Four, a $4 billion fund they just raised or $7 billion, whatever it is. They have, they're getting to it's, – it's a, it's a fraction of SoftBank size, but they're getting to, to a place where they need to deploy huge numbers in order to deploy all that capital. It's like this is one of those problems. When you get so big, you, you see fund performance actually drop off after you hit a certain size on a per fund basis because deploying into quality companies is just that much more difficult. But going back to the entrepreneur problem, it's like I try to think to myself, how do I erase the bias, the ignorance bias? Like, oh, if I didn't know this person beforehand. And this is something I constantly work on. And, and Zach, I think you're one of the best at this because you are like a Hoover when it comes to just listening to people. And this is a little bit of a Zach Aaron's love fest because Zach had one of the biggest angel portfolios before Metaprop. It was like, 
he just he could spot an entrepreneur that was amazing and he would say okay i'm going to back you and like that was that was an, that was awesome because people that ordinarily wouldn't have a shot with any established vcs could come to zach be heard and then actually get funded and then get his network i think that's a big piece of what's happened here where you had a guy who had who's in that venture flow i'll say it again versus people zach that you're talking about that just aren't in it and don't know how to break into it because they don't have the warm connections that get them into that quote unquote rarefied air of, of VC funding. Yeah. And, and I think your point also about potential downside protection is really important too here, right? Like who knows how they underwrote this thing? Maybe they're only underwriting it to a five X or a 10 X when you, when you're deploying hundreds of millions of dollars, a five X return is extraordinary, right? My fund, I'm writing a $2 million check. A five X is 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 not really going to move the needle for my investors. So it's just a different game. And then to Jeff's point, and I'm I'm not a not a tax attorney, I'm not a real estate attorney, I'm not an accountant. I don't know any tax advantageous way to take venture capital funds and invest it into multifamily real estate. But if they've indeed figured out how to do that, and part of this three hundred fifty million is actually going to the equity in the assets themselves, well, then your downside is even more protected in making an investment like this. And so maybe they underwrote it, okay, maybe our upside's capped at 510X, but we're most likely not gonna lose our money here because we're still backed up by quality real estate. Again, we don't know. I have seen the deck though for the, uh, the carbon, the goddess token, the, uh, the blockchain, carbon thing that they also invested in. And that was very, I, I have to say it was terrifying because it made no sense. When you say terrifying, do you mean it was the greatest thing you've ever seen? I mean, awesome. Yeah. Terrifyingly awesome. And, you know, if we talk about guardrails, you know, euphoria is a hell of a thing because if I didn't have these great partners and colleagues at Metaprop, I was approached at the end of last year with every single no product real estate crypto deal and they were all raising at $100 million pre-monies, and I wanted to do them all. And my colleagues were like, you are insane. <laughs> we're not letting you do this. And I'm very thankful. You know, part of, part of mindfulness and elevating the world's consciousness is expressing gratitude. So I'd like to take this opportunity to express gratitude to my Metaprop colleagues for preventing me from making a lot of really big mistakes last year. And, and I want to extend gratitude to your Metaprop colleagues for making sure you didn't make that mistake because then I don't get laughed at. Like, what did Zach do? No, now it's like, oh, Zach, he's one of the best VCs on the planet. Uh, uh, so thank you, Aaron. This guy's so disciplined. <laughs> so disciplined. He's so very disciplined. In case you haven't heard, the housing market is not a seller's market anymore. Competing for buyers for your residential project has never been tougher. That's why having an experienced partner with the right technology to power and track your sales is more important than ever. Spark Real Estate offers a suite of products specifically designed for real estate developers, brokers, and marketing teams to scale new development condo sales. Spark enables developers to manage entire portfolios of projects and identify diverse target segments to customize their strategy. Spark helped craft the campaigns that powered some of the largest and most prestigious developments, including Five Park Miami Beach and the iconic Mandarin Oriental Residences Fifth Avenue. Spark also helped the Douglas Element Development Marketing Team manage the sale of over 2,100 units and $9 billion in inventory since making the switch to Spark in 2019. To learn how some of the top North American developers sell out projects, visit spark.re. That's spark.re. The, the, hope, the hopeless romantic in me for still hopes that, you know, Andres and Horowitz, such innovators that they'll somehow come and improve access to housing or improve how, how we find the rent and, and live in, in community uh, in the new remote worker era. But I'm also worried what, uh, like you said, what, what message is, is this sending to entrepreneurs and, and the ecosystem as a whole, right? 
off the bat, it's a better business. Multifamily is a better business than than WeWork was, you know, master leasing office space and subleasing it. Uh, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, WeWork had raised around 18, 20 billion dollars pre-IPO, uh, and they are worth now four billion. So, in terms of being a, a good product, I think WeWork, you know, found a good brand and it's a good product. And the timing, they were lucky with timing now with the pandemic. But, you know, it's still a business that burns so much money. Multifamily, yeah, the, the question is, is going to go back to, again, is this going to be valued or this should this be valued as a real estate company or as a tech company? You know, deja vu once again. But, uh, yeah, I, I think Andreessen just got themselves a fancy uh, property management company. We will, we will see. When we, when we do this podcast again in 10 years, we will have to do a post-mortem on it. I certainly hope you're going to be back before 10 years. <laughs> But we won't be able to do a postmortem. These things take a long time to play out. That's the other thing in venture. Don't count companies out. Don't, you know, I, I have companies that were left for dead that are now crushing it and companies that were crushing it that are now dying. And so it's a long-term game and you got to have a, a thick skin and a lot of Pepto-Bismol because it, it, gets, it gets real hairy sometimes. <laughs> but one thing I will say to the positive about WeWork is, in my opinion, it is the only globally recognized real estate brand and that's a significant achievement absolutely when you think i need to spin up an office you think we work and you think we work you can do we work in jakarta you can do it in cairo you can do it in toronto you can do it in sao paulo and there really isn't anything else with that type of reach that type of brand recognition absolutely but it shouldn't have taken 20 billion dollars to get there no, but that, that was a point that I was going to make, which is look at the airtime we and probably countless people are spending on this when none of us really know anything about it except if they're an insider in the deal. And that annoy, it annoys me that we're even talking about this because there are so many better topics that we, that we can talk about except debating whether or not Adam Newman is the smartest person on the planet or Mark Andreessen is the smartest VC on the planet and we just don't know what we're talking about. I, it really is staggering. And that, I think, is his genius, the marketing behind it. And, it. and I ain't taking that away from him. Like the fact that he, he had an idea and he continues to have ideas. He was pilloried in the, in the press, in, in public consciousness. And now he's back with a lot more money. Hey, yeah. take some talent to do that. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I can't help but to think, uh, you know, what you said before, Jeff, about, you know, they, they raised billions of dollars in recent that need to deploy it. But making it their largest check ever with only a landing page, which uh, that's what Flo has right now in a few thousand apartments. Uh, there's a bit of trolling in there, making it their largest check ever. Uh, you know, signal they are signaling that they back bold founders, um, but there's a bit of trolling involved there in, in how just everything went about, you know, saying that the U.S. needs to build more housing when we know they're Andreessen is also publicly against building in his own backyard. So there's definitely an element of trolling involved here. Um, but let's move on. Uh, let's move on to uh, one of our favorite topics here. Uh, PropTech-friendly cities. Uh, Zach, you've been uh, not only around the U.S., but also around the world, you know, working with, with different uh, locations, emerging markets, pushing uh, for innovative uh, PropTech solutions. So uh, tell us more, like, what... How can PropTech play a role in driving more enduring uh, private-public partnerships? Yeah, I, I think um, I was really lucky that I happened to be in New York City in the golden age uh, of PropTech uh, at the sort of dawn of the last decade. And the energy was palpable. Uh, there were only a handful of companies, but we all knew that we were part of something and part of something that could get global and part of something that could get big. And there was some activity in Silicon Valley and some activity in Seattle with Zillow, certainly. But New York, especially for commercial technology, really took the bull by the horns and planted a flag. And so I've considered it a mission of mine since we've become a little bit more mature as a market and as an organization to spread the gospel of prop tech uh, around the world. So We've been investing in emerging markets um, gradually, and we think there's a lot of opportunity, especially given how 
inconsistent and disorganized the real estate data is in some of these markets. And so we've gone into markets like Mexico and Colombia and Nigeria and South Korea. And uh, we're really excited because we see a lot of the same dynamics, a lot of the same uh, skepticism from the real estate industry, a lot of the same hesitance and reluctance to adopt technology uh, that we saw in the United States, you know, maybe seven, eight years ago, uh, playing out in, in some of these emerging markets, Latin America, West Africa. Um, so we're very excited. Uh, another thing we're excited about uh, as it relates to the United States is PropTech has matured and there, there have now emerged certain pockets smaller sort of tertiary markets that are primary prop tech markets. And my favorite one to talk about is Santa Barbara, California, which is a beautiful town, but it's a, it's a sleepy seaside resort town um, in Southern California, but it's the home of Yardi. It's the home of Appfolio. It's the, it's the home of Procore. And then because all those companies are there, there've been a ton of startups uh, uh, from former employees who frankly love the, the sun and the surf and want to stay there. So portfolio company of ours, Brick, um, and many, many others have started to come out of that ecosystem. So the city's very small, but it probably has the highest concentration of prop tech professionals per capita of any place in the world. And we're seeing interesting pockets emerge all across the country. Uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, for example, is becoming a hub for prop tech robotics um, and 3D printing and sort of deep tech applications. And, uh, and, and we love supporting this stuff. We think it is part of our duty, part of our privilege as, as being you know, now an established firm in an, in an established prop tech market like New York City to try and go around and educate people about the, the successes and failures that, that we've ex- experienced. And, and whenever you know, there's, the, 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 there's the famous VC cliche, how can I be helpful? I, I, I can't help myself, but I do ask that of entrepreneurs when I first meet them. And whenever you meet an entrepreneur from a market, whether it's Lagos, Nigeria, or Bogota, Colombia, the number one thing they say is, I want to be connected to entrepreneur X in your portfolio who's been doing a similar company to mine and been doing it you know, five to seven years longer. I want to learn about every mistake they made so I don't replicate them. And I, I feel very excited that I can make those connections. Yeah, I think in terms of, uh, you know, making interest to to people in your portfolio or people that have been there, done that, I think that's super valuable. Um, in terms of working directly with cities, you know, how, how can we go about this in a in a more holistic way? I mean, I, one, one big obstacle to just improving uh, prop tech uh, adoption is, uh, you know, working together hand in hand with, with local governments. And that may include, uh, you know, improving access to housing or improving access to, uh, you know, walkable cities. Like I came across this digital tool, digital simulation tool called Balancing Act that helps simulate, uh, you know, during uh, like community board uh, discussions where to do developments. Um, so are you are you seeing, uh, you know, more interest in these solutions to improve like the, the relationship between uh, prop tech companies and, and public, uh, the public uh, sector? Yeah, so so that that's this answer is twofold. One, I'm seeing a lot more really exciting software platforms start to get traction that function to stimulate and streamline the public-private process as it relates to real estate entitlements. So companies like Courbanize, they are software as a service platforms that developers and government officials can use to engage with the community because. Not everybody in the community wants to or has time to show up in some dingy basement and listen to a bunch of people yelling about development for three hours. They may want to yell about it (laughs) online, (laughs) on social media, right? And so we want to capture all that. So that's, that's one interesting trend that I'm seeing. Another thing that we've always been and Camber Creek as well, we've, we've always been working with various government organizations over the years to help, uh, one, them use technology, but also to highlight prop tech as a bridge between two really important sectors within any city. One is the real estate sector, the other is the technology sector. So 
one of the first things my partner Aaron did when we started Metaprop was reach out to the New York City Economic Development Corporation, tell them who we are, what we're doing. We started a dialogue with the Real Estate Board of New York, the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors in the UK, and, and many other organizations over the years. And we're seeing that now spread internationally. For example, I just got an email from a former student of mine at Columbia who's Chilean. He's from Santiago. He is bringing a delegation from the uh, Chilean Building Trades Union, which is the largest construction union in Chile. And they're coming to New York. And their main interest in coming to New York is to look at um, the prop tech ecosystem here. So uh, they are visiting our offices and, and we're going to give them a tour. And so I think just it's been, look, it's been very hard with COVID the past two years where we've been actively trying to restrict cross-border interaction and travel. I think one of the most important things the prop tech industry can be is a conduit between local governments around the world where they can show best practices. That's awesome. I think prop tech can also be a conduit to help cities around the world and in the U.S. Uh, compete uh, for talent, right? Not We're seeing now not only companies competing for talent, but cities, states, countries uh, competing to attract talent. So I think PropTech could and is playing a crucial role there. You know, in the past, we've seen cities compete for Amazon HQ2. Uh, Hopefully they can use that as a blueprint to to now compete, uh, you know, and and just raise the the quality of life for everyone. Um, Okay, let's move on to our last section, miscellaneous. Uh, Zach. If you could change one aspect of your city, what could it be? Uh, we're giving you the magic wand for one day. You can improve one aspect of your city. Uh, what would you choose and why? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I would, I would definitely have more frequent sanitation pickups for public receptacles. That's important. And, uh, you know, don't want to get our hopes down, but reading accounts of New York City uh, from 100 or so years ago, people were complaining about the same things. But hopefully we can get to a better place sooner rather than later. Now, Zach, we're going to enter that discomfort zone for one second here. What's something that you've changed your mind about uh, recently? Uh, and how did you go about it? He already told you. That's true. All the kryptonite, kryptonite crypto token, real estate. I, I feel like he's changed his mind on that. But I'll give you another one that I've changed my mind about to the positive. <laughs> I used to be convinced that there was not enough capital and that it was just frankly too hard technologically to get some of these really, really challenging deep tech products to market, whether it's like a low carbon cement solution. And because of that, I was very hesitant to even look at investing in those types of companies because we're long-term investors, but long-term for us means 10 years. It doesn't mean 20 years. And what I'm seeing now, and I, I would say I've changed my mind about it, is I believe that the there's been a significant compression in time to market, one, because of sort of Moore's law and technological advancement, and two, just because of the flood of capital going into it, where I would say my confidence and conviction as it relates to investing in those types of companies has has gone way up, that I I still haven't rushed head on and done a lot of those deals. But that's something that that I definitely, and, you know, I, I don't have an identity associated with any single position I have. And so, and people, when people start to work with me, they actually find it pretty crazy because I'll be going off for like 20 minutes about how much I love a company and how great it is and how big the TAM is and how great the product is. And then I'll hear one piece of data from one of my colleagues and I'll say, you know what, you're right. Let's just pass. Let's just get rid of it. (laughs) And people think that's crazy because people expect me to have such an attachment to my views where I just have an attachment to the process. And so if someone shows me data, I'm very happy to change my mind. And there's a great Adam Grant book about how important it is to frequently reassess, change your mind. It's important to have conviction, certainly. Um, there's a you know strong opinions weekly held, right? It's like, I'm going to have conviction And I'm going to be full-throated about it until someone shows me a piece of data that is to the contrary. And then if I agree with that piece of data, I'm going to be just as quick 
to change my mind and admit that I was completely wrong about it. Because at the end of the day... And by the way... Go ahead. No, no, no. I want to hear what you were going to say at the end of the day. No, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm confident enough in my own abilities as an investor where being wrong one time is not going to tank my career or my perception of myself or my self-worth or my prominence in the industry. Well, it's not... And it's, and it's not just that. It's also... We, we're so lucky, frankly, to have the partners that we do because it's very easy to have a myopic tunnel vision. You start this process, you want to get to the end of the process when you're deep in the thick of it, to have partners and colleagues that can say, wait a second, slow down. Here's some information you may not, you may have missed or is brand new. And they can look at it with fresh eyes, which can help alleviate some of that pressure to go from A to Z. I think we're both, frankly, quite lucky in that regard. Yeah. And I think, you know, this, this ride, there are some people who are excellent at being solopreneur venture capitalists. But I think if you look at some of the stupidest underwriting decisions of the past two years, they came from people who were believing their own bullshit as solo VCs in their own information vacuums. And those, a lot of those investors, their portfolios are now completely underwater. And, you know, it's not an easy business. And this idea that, oh, it's so much better to be by myself because I can move so much faster. It's not always the best. It's not always best to be the fastest. I, I love that quote, Zach, uh, attachment to the process. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the book you're referring to is Think Again by Adam Grant. Correct. Uh, fascinating book. I recommend it. Good stuff. Last but not least, Zach, where can our listeners find you and Metaprop? Uh, you can find us uh, online at uh, metaprop.vc. You can uh, read my book. It's called PropTech 101. It's sort of a primer on uh, the PropTech industry and some of our innovation processes. Um, I also teach a course at Columbia University. You can apply to the uh, Master's in Real Estate Development Program at Columbia's uh, Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. Um, I'm also active on Twitter, although every time I post something I think is funny. It doesn't get a lot of engagement. Anytime I post something asinine about the prop tech industry, it gets a lot of engagement. And I'm on LinkedIn. I don't have quite the following that Jeff Berman. Jeff Berman's LinkedIn is much better, but I also occasionally post um, on LinkedIn. So those are the places you can find me. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get our firm more active on, you know, TikTok and so that so that we can be hip with the Gen Zers. But, you know, we're not we're not quite there yet. But I, I only lecture at a, I only lecture at my own, you know, actually there's no one listening to me right now, but I'll, I'll lecture to an empty room while Zach actually lectures to uh, Ivy League students. He's molding brilliant young minds. We'll make sure to add links to that in the episode description. Uh, Zach, this has been a fascinating, well-rounded conversation. Thank you uh, for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Zach, and hope you come on and join us again. I would love to. See you next time. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Tangent and share this episode with a friend. This season is edited by Katarina Silva and is produced by me, Edward Cohen. Thanks for listening to Tangent and remember, collaboration is our superpower, so stay curious and always be learning.